everyone. Today's reading is from Mark 12, verses 1 to 12. Jesus then began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a pit for the wine press, and built a watchtower. Then he went to the farmyard to some farmers and moved to another place. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. But they seized him, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Then he sent another servant to them. They struck this man on the head and treated him shamefully. He sent still another, and that one was killed. He sent many others. Some of them they beat, others they killed. He had one left to send, a son whom he loved. He sent him last of all, saying, They will respect my son. But the tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Haven't you read this passage of scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this and it is marvellous in our eyes. Then the chief priests, the teachers of the law and the elders looked for a way to arrest him because they knew he had spoken the parable against them. But they were afraid of the crowd, so they left him and went away. Thank you, Stephanie. Um, Just bear with me as I get my uh, tablet ready to preach from. might take me a while because it's not paper. Uh, I'm sorry to disappoint you, Michael, but technology serves a purpose in my life. Oh, look at that email from Michael. Oh, no. let's pray and we'll have a look at this uh this parable heavenly father thank you for your word thank you that we can come to it with great confidence thank you that it has a powerful message and thank you that uh, you have called us uh, to be your vineyard uh, through the death and the resurrection of the lord jesus and so father as we open this parable and we consider it we pray that you convict our hearts and that you encourage us uh, with your great truth and we pray this in jesus name amen Well, I wonder if you've ever strategically provoked someone. If you've ever watched the Hollywood movie, uh, you would have known the courtroom scenes really well. This is one of the famous ones. Uh, The lawyer leads the accused down a path, provokes them with questions, provokes to get the truth out of them, and finally they break. And this is a few good men. Uh, Tom Cruise, in all his acting prowess, Uh, is there and uh, he keeps provoking Jack Nicholson, the colonel, uh, about an order he'd given on the field which led to the death of someone and finally the colonel explodes, you want answers? And the lawyer says, Tom Cruise, I want the truth. And then Colonel Jessup says, you can't handle the truth. Then goes on a tirade of what he really thinks that no one should question the job uh, job that he's done because he got it done. 
And in part of that tirade, he says, I have neither the time nor the inclination to explain myself to a man who rises and sleeps under the blanket of the very freedom that I provide and then questions the manner in which I provide it. It's a powerful time where a provocation has led to a very powerful uh, revealing of what's in the heart of this man. See, nations strategically provoke each other all the time. Wars often start when one nation does something just to push the other over the edge. Testing a nuclear weapon, uh, inferring that a pandemic may have been started by another nation, sending hot air surveillance balloons to see if they'll shoot them down, uh, simply writing off what another nation thinks because they just don't matter. See, provocation is there because it looks for a reaction. It's usually aware what, uh, that what will push the other person's buttons. Uh, I can almost guarantee that if any of you have a sibling, you have strategically provoked someone in your life. I have a house of two kids who are strategically provoking each other to get one up on each other every day. So this morning in Mark 12, 1 to 12, Jesus is being provocative. He tells a story that pushes the buttons of the religious leaders of Israel to a whole nother level. See, since Jesus entered Jerusalem, if you cast your mind back to the previous couple of sermons, back to chapter 11, he set himself on a course of judgment upon everything that's happening in the temple. He overthrew the tables of the money changers uh, and those selling doves and other sacrifices and when he's confronted by the ruling council of Israel, the chief priests, the teachers of the law and the elders, they demand to know by what authority he was doing these things and who gave him that authority because they didn't. And if you remember, he, uh, he asked them a question which made them look like fools. He trapped them in their own hypocrisy, but their eyes were blind to their own failings. And after Jesus quoted Isaiah 56, which he declares God's temple will be called a house of prayer for all nations, and he says, but you have made it into a den of robbers, we read this in chapter 11, verse 18, that the chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him. And just when you thought Jesus had provoked them enough and he's probably best turning his attention back to his own disciples, we're told in chapter 12, verse 1, in our text today, we are told that Jesus then, Jesus then began to speak to them in parables. You see, the them is still the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders. See, Jesus is a man who does not fear death. He's a man who is assured of his purpose in life, his calling in life, and no threat of any human-originated authority is ever, ever going to have the slightest impact on the authority he has been granted that originated from heaven. You see, the them is still those who have the power to kill him and who have started plotting to do that. And so he tells this parable to them to provoke them. And the setting of this parable is a vineyard planted by an unnamed man. Jesus says in verse 1, this man puts a wall around uh, it, the vineyard. 
He digs a pit for the wine press and he builds a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers or vine dressers and moved to another place. So if you have a look at these pictures, that kind of gives you an idea of... Uh, so you've got the, the vineyard, obviously, in the top right-hand corner. You've got the wine press, which they would have put the grapes into to press all the juices out, etc., uh, on the left there. And in the bottom right, you've got what probably looked like the watchtower. And that's what he would have built so that they could look out over the land to uh, see if there was any predators or thieves or whatever it might be, and someone would be stationed up there to watch over the vineyard. But I want you to notice here that the owner had originally established the vineyard. He didn't just give the land and then these vine dressers or the tenants uh, went and established everything. Everything that was needed for that vineyard to produce a crop for those tenants was orig originally in place by the landowner. I don't think there's any, uh, any doubt that Jesus included that for a reason. See, he paid... The, the landowner paid for the grapevines, he planted them, he paid for the infrastructure, everything they needed. And in Jesus' time, we know that there were large parts of Israel that were owned by foreigners. They would lease that land out to people uh, who would grow the crops and make a living. But the owner had a legitimate claim to payment when harvest came. Uh, and in this instance, there's no doubt, because he'd invested the capital, he had every right to come and claim some of the harvest. The tenants were there to care for the vine, watch for predators, harvest the grapes by pressing them, fermenting them, and yes, earning a good income for themselves. But a vineyard would usually take, in Jesus' time, about four years to produce its first crop. So in this story, as these vine dressers, as these tenants are on the land, they've probably been there for four years. They've completely forgotten the fact that someone else owns the land. They've done all the work. They've done lots of work. They've probably worked very hard and they've created a very uh, bountiful harvest. But they've forgotten that they're not the owners. They are there to keep the land uh, and to, own, uh, to, to, to dress the vines and to produce the crop. And the owner was always going to come and claim uh, the, the, the fruit that he deserved. We're then told in verses 2 to 5 this. At harvest time, he sent a servant, that's the landowner, to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. But they seized him, beat him, sent him away empty-handed. Then he sent another servant to them. They struck this man on the head, treated him shamefully. He sent still another, and that one they killed. He sent many others. Some of them they beat, others they killed. Well, he had one left to send, a son. See, what's really happening here is the tenants have done all the work and they resent having to give uh, the, the, the fruit back to the, to the owner. But in verses 6 to 8, he then does go on, and Jesus says this, he, he had one left to send, a son whom he loved. He sent him last of all, saying, they will respect my son. But the tenants said to one another, this is the heir, come, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. You see, they believed they were the rightful heirs because they're the ones who had done all the work. 
They saw the vineyard as theirs. It was profitable. They, and, 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 and they didn't want to see it return to the rightful son. So they killed him. And look what they did with the body. They just threw his body out of the land. They disposed of it. No dignity, no care. They were completely uninterested in anything uh, to do with caring for anyone else. See, this is an atrocity. At the very core of all this that Jesus is explaining, this is murder. They are murdering not just some of the servants, but the only son of this landowner. So in verse 9, Jesus says this. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. See, the father will have his vengeance. He will administer justice upon those men under the law. They killed his son, so he will kill them. And they will not have any more part in the land. He will give the land to others. So that's the parable that Jesus is telling to these uh, religious elite in Israel. And there is no doubt about what he's talking about here. This isn't a cryptic parable. This isn't just a cryptic story. To see who has ears to hear, let them hear, as Jesus says parables were for. He's saying this directly to provoke them. He is provoking them by condemning them. Now, just to bring all that out, I just want you to uh, listen to Isaiah chapter 5. Sorry how small that is, but uh, there is no doubt that the people of God are the ones who are the vineyard referred to in here. See, verses 1 to 2 of Isaiah 5 says, I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up and cleared it of stones and planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut out a wine press as well. Then he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. See, there's no doubt Jesus is making reference to the Old Testament prophets about Israel being the vineyard of God. And then in verse 7 of Isaiah 5, it says, The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the nation of Israel, and the people of Judah are the vines he delighted in. And he looked for justice but saw bloodshed, for righteousness but heard cries of distress. These are teachers of the law, chief priests. These are the elders. These are the ones who know the scriptures. They know exactly what he is saying here. And while Isaiah is a judgment upon the vineyard itself, what Jesus is exposing in this parable is that God is not going to destroy the vineyard, but the ones who were charged to take care of it. The tenants are the religious leaders of Israel who had allowed the temple to become a den of robbers. See, through the history of Israel, God had sent his prophets, one after the other, to call Israel and particularly the leaders to repentance, to turn away from their idolatry, to turn back to worshipping the one whom they call God and know, God, know as the Lord their God. God warned his people over and over that if they wanted a king like other nations, they were rejecting him as king. But they said, no, we want one anyway. And we had Solomon and David and so on. And those wonderful passages in 1 and 2 Kings, which just kept saying, 
But this king did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And it just went over and over and over again. See, he had been sending his prophets. But what did they do? They rejected, beat them. They killed the prophets. And as Jesus is telling this parable, the the chief priests, teachers of the law and the elders, well, they knew full well what he was saying. They had statues of these prophets all around Jerusalem. They knew what what had happened to these prophets. And they were fully aware of Jesus' claim as God's son. See, in the last chapter, they asked your question if you answer my question. And he says, John the Baptist's ministry, was it from men or from God? And they went away in their little huddle and they were trapped because all they cared about was keeping their own authority. And they said to themselves, well, if we say John the Baptist's ministry is of God, then what does that mean? Well, it means that his claims about Jesus are true. So we would be acknowledging that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. But if we say they're not, that John Baptist was of men and what he said wasn't true, then the people revered John as a prophet. So we will lose the, the people. And so they end up saying, we don't know. We don't know. See, he'd made them look like fools. But what is the pivotal moment of John's ministry? If you think back to the very beginning of Mark, Mark starts with John's ministry, is the baptism of Jesus. And what happens at the baptism of Jesus? Well, from heaven a voice comes for everyone to hear. And these chief priests, these teachers of the law, these elders knew all this. And what does he say? You are my son whom I love. With you, with you I am well pleased. You see, they know all this. He is leading them and provoking them and taking them into a place where they are being trapped to be able to be either helpless or they're going to have to kill him. See, Jesus is saying, I know you are plotting to kill me and you will, but it is through my death that the vineyard will be ripped from you and given to others. They are the tenants. Jesus is the son. The people of God are the vineyard. And leaders who want to lord it over and replace God's authority with their own authority, well, it will be ripped from them. See, when Jesus dies on the cross at the hands of these people, the law will be fulfilled. He was without sin. He fulfilled the law fully, the very thing that bound the people to these religious leaders because they were the ones who controlled the sacrificial system. They could tell people what they needed to do. They could keep them condemned in their sin forever and ever and put themselves up saying, well, we are the righteous ones, even though that wasn't true. Jesus has revealed their hypocrisy, and when he dies on that cross, he pays the punishment for the sin of the people, all nations who put their faith in him. 
And so God is turning this around. And while they go to kill him, Jesus knows that that is his destiny. Why? Because it is the fulfillment of God's plan, the fulfillment of his calling, so that all nations can come and make the house of God a prayer for them. See, God's wrath and judgment will be appeased. The sacrificial system of animals being slaughtered to pay for the sin of the people will be abolished because Jesus' once and for all sacrifice. God's Son, just as the parable says, will be killed and discarded out of the land. Jesus' burial place was outside the walls of the city. There's no coincidences here. Jesus knows exactly what's about to happen. And he's saying, you power, the power of you religious leaders, well, it no longer will exist. You will be thrown out. I will be restored as king, and the way of salvation will be through faith in the blood and the forgiveness of sin, so that all people through faith will be able to worship. And salvation and adoption as children of God will be given to those beginning in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. There's no, there's, no, uh, there's, there's, there's no coincidence that Jesus comes to the city and see these stones. I don't know if you, when you go to the temple, as it is today, you see some of the stones, and they are massive. If you've been there, that, they, these stones are huge. They would almost be, they would probably be the length of that wall. And he says... Knock it down, I'll rebuild it in three days. But the temple he was talking about is his body. See, he's replacing all, the, all this system. And the people of God are now the temple of God. Well, then to complete his provocation, Jesus quotes Psalm, uh, Psalm 100 and... I don't have it up there, sorry. He quotes Psalm 118, verses 22 to 23. Uh, yes, I do. In verses 10, uh, verses 10 and 11. He says, The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvellous in our eyes. See, they know exactly who he's talking about. He is saying, I am going to be the one on which God builds the kingdom Jesus is the stone the builders rejected. They being the builders who were entrusted with building God's kingdom and the temple, well, they're going to reject him, crucify him. And Jesus finishes by saying this. Uh, well, Mark finishes by telling us, Then the chief priests, the teachers of the law, the elders looked for a way to arrest him because they knew he had spoken the parable against them. But they were afraid of the crowd, so they left him and went away. See, it was the religious leaders plotting away and convincing the Roman governors that led to Jesus' death. These very people who were, uh, Jesus was provoking will kill him. See, and we're told in that quote uh, from Psalm 118, the Lord has done this and it is marvellous in our eyes. It's marvellous in our eyes because this is the thing that all of our faith is built upon. We have no access to God unless it is by faith. 
And this is what Jesus says in 3.16 of John. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Human authority got rid of him. God's authority crowned him as the king of kings and the lord of lords. He came riding in on a donkey. He gets crucified on a cross. His body gets discarded outside of the city. Because he was the one, the son, that was sent to claim the inheritance from the vine growers. But what did he find? Well, he didn't find an inheritance that had been built up for the kingdom of God, worshipping God. He found a den of robbers. And they killed him. But in God's providence and God's sovereignty, that is why we now, as all nations, have access, whether Israel, whether non-Israel, all of us come in the same way. See, from this point in Mark's gospel, the question isn't whether they will kill him or whether Jesus is the Son of God or whether he is the Messiah. If you haven't seen the, 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 uh, the, the strength of that argument by now, the only question we've got left is when will they kill him? Well, Easter is coming. And the good news is that on the third day, Jesus was raised to life and he is seated at the right hand of God the Father and he is the true heir, and he is ruling the world, and all the, law, all the, all the, the, the earth and all uh, is the Lord's and the fullness of thereof. I had a King James Version and an NIV going in my head at the same time. See, Easter's coming. He is the true heir. And now, through faith, he is building his vineyard until that day that he returns. And the question for us is that how are we tending the vineyard that we've been entrusted with? Are we building the vineyard up or are we destroying it? Are we bringing life to the vineyard or are we pushing people away from the vineyard? Is this vineyard a place people can come and drink the wine and share in the fruit? Is it a place people can find peace for their souls, forgiveness for their sin and life everlasting? Are we tending the vines because of our love for the owner of the vineyard or are we trying to build our own little vineyards within the vineyard? Do we rely on our authority or on God's authority? See, the reason we don't have a priesthood today is because all of us who have faith in the Lord Jesus are now the priesthood, the priesthood of all believers, charged with tending the vineyard, caring for the vineyard, growing the vineyard, and bringing vines and grafting them into the vineyard through the proclamation of the gospel, through the love that we have for the world, and for the faith that we exercise in the owner of the vineyard. So that's the question. How are we tending our vineyard? Because if we are not tending it with the understanding it is someone else's vineyard, the one who has grafted us into the vineyard, then we are in danger that one day that will be taken from us. The air will come and we will be left 
with nothing but rotting fruit and worthless vines. Well, my hope and my prayer is that our vineyard is strong and that we can keep tending it and growing it so that when that air does come, when the Lord Jesus comes, we can present that vineyard to him and choice wine will flow out of that vineyard which brings great glory to him. Heavenly Father, thank you for just the, the frankness of this parable. Thank you that uh, it is very clear that, uh, that you have charged uh, all of us with uh, being tenders of your vineyard. But Lord, thank you that the Lord Jesus uh, has paved the way for that through his death and resurrection. Father God, uh, though we that we feel uh, so sad at the, at the reality that our sin has meant that the Son of God has gone to the cross. Lord, help us to recognize the love that that demonstrates for us from you. And Lord, as we go about tending your vineyard and growing your vineyard and proclaiming your vineyard, we pray, Lord, that you will bless us with a heart that is always looking for that day when the air comes so that we can present his vineyard to him. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.